Welcome to Season 3 of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Like intellectual bowerbirds, we aim to collect shiny little objects of knowledge that we think can help build better humans. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Unforgiving 60. I'm Ben Pronk. And I'm still here and I'm Tim Curtis. (laughs) I've not been sacked yet. (laughs) Miracle. Unbelievably. Um, I like our guest this week, Rear Admiral Lee Goddard. Mm. We first met Lee on the high seas. I I first met Lee on the high seas. Sure. Well, in fact, let's go back a step because I first met him as a cadet where he was the academy cadet captain at the Australian Defence Force Academy. A role that you later had, mm. and that was 1989. And unbelievable as a senior cadet, you know, three years in, um, the leadership that he showed as the academy cadet captain was really inspiring. Just a guy who just did all of the little things right. And to a follower that's observing mm. a leader, even though the leader is a cadet, you're looking out for the things that they don't do right. Mm-hmm. You know, the standard you walk past is a standard you accept, <laughs> so the story goes. Mm. And he set very high standards. That's awesome. And continue to do that, obviously, throughout uh, his military career. You don't get to be a two-star without doing that. Um, but our first, or my first meeting, um, which which you were there for, was during that operation to recover the, the Pong Su. Mm-hmm. Um, we embarked on Lee's ship, the HMAS Stewart. And um, we were debating before what his role was. I thought it was navigator. Incorrect. Executive officer. You reckon it was XO? Do you think we'll get a chance to talk about the Pong Su? I haven't talked about that for, <laughs> for a little while. Strap in. <laughs> I reckon Lee will be lucky to get a word in edgeways this episode. In fact, what's the point of having him on the show? Let's try not to talk about our view of the Pong Su. I'm really interested in his. We've, we have caught up since then, but clearly the, the whole naval aspect of it, um, just the... Um, uh, you know the, the the sheer environmental aspect, putting an ANZAC class frigate into those seas on that intercept course, finding this vessel, going through the laws of escalate or the the escalation procedures. Um, I, I think that would be a fascinating conversation with him. What is an army unit? A unit is the sort of equivalent of a ship. Um, so a unit is a battalion or a Regiment-sized organisation, about, what do you say, 700 people, yeah. yep, commanded by a lieutenant colonel, yep, autonomous yeah. sort of organisation. So in the Navy, the unit is the ship, isn't mm-hmm. it? And he commanded HMAS Parramatta, the Anzac-class mm-hmm. frigate, um, as well as holding other appointments on um, a range of other ships, including coalition ships, including yep. service in the Middle East. But he was also on the sail training ship Young Endeavour. This will be a cool story. Um, that's a, a beautiful old tall ship um, that the, the Navy still maintains. And I'm interested in the difference between setting to sea in an Anzac-class warship versus a Young Endeavour-class tall ship. Hmm. He also commanded Maritime Border Command in 2019. He served in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Um, and more recently, he's transitioned out of full-time uniform, although I think he's still a reservist, and into the Mindaroo Foundation. 
and we're going to talk about his role inside Andrew Forrest's Foundation Mindaroo, um, and in particular, the sorts of initiatives that they're rolling out, of which there are many, and mm. they are all fascinating. Sounds like a good episode. Let's get on with the show. Giving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis with my co-host Ben Pronk. How are you, Tim? I'm very well, and I'm even more happy because today I've got two former Australian Defence Force Academy Academy Cadet captains. Yeah. Um, we have Lee Goddard on the show. <laughs> Lee, welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Ben. Great to be here, and thanks to uh, thanks for inviting me to join you and, and your and your audience. So, Rear Admiral Lee Goddard, could you pricey up your sort of early life into uniform and uh, what got you to where you are today? I actually uh, decided to join the Navy my last year at school in 1986 and I was a boy from the burbs of uh, Melbourne, uh, inspired by movies like Top Gun and, and uh, jingles like You'll Be Wet, You'll Be Tired, You'll Be Homesick, but Pride of the Fleet with you. <laughs> That's right, yeah, the Pride that of one. the Fleet. <laughs> yeah, I forgot that. In the days when our Navy was young and the ship the pride of the fleet they gaze out at her in wonder make an old sailor's heart skip a beat well the ships have gone through some changes and the roles have changed a bit too you'll be wet you'll be homesick and frightened but the pride of the fleet will be you that was great I, I, that jingle was fantastic it really made me want to join the navy Oh, I still think about it. It's, it's, uh, it's been my cycle, it's been my career. And, of course, um, ADFA, you know, this new Camelot uh, for young women and men had been created in Canberra. But, but actually what um, uh, in the end got me to join the Navy was, was visiting, I think it was HMOS Darn, arrived at the station pier and meeting a young sub-lieutenant. In fact, there was a bunch of us scruffy boys and... And he was—he probably was the most together and, and uh, focused, and um, and seen the world, and um, most uh, probably the best leader that I actually probably related to. And he was only 22, 23, I guess. And I remember a group of us went, "I want to be just like him." So that was a moment that I decided to join the navy. Hmm. Uh, and of course, it started at the Australian Defence Force Academy, as you both well know, Tim and, and Ben. Of course, Tim, you were there uh, a couple of years uh, with while I was there, and then of course. Mm-hmm. A full-time career um, you know, finished, I guess, in January of this year, 34 years later. I've transferred to the active reserve and I'll still t- stay in touch very much with the Navy and the Defence Force on national security apparatus and I'll still do some reserve time. But, yeah, 34-year journey. Um, and I said it before, the reason I joined really was for service and adventure. Mm. And, gee, I got it, you know, every day, you know, service and adventure. And, you know, even joining Mindaroo, Know, with great values alignment and um, you know, being valued and you know, where you can add, add the most value and impact, it's a continuation of that service and adventure. And I think that's what we all strive for and, and thrive in mm. those moments as well, as, as I'm sure you've both experienced too. First question for a career sailor, mm. do you get seasick? Have you ever been seasick, Lee? 
I don't get motion sick. I've done quite a bit of offshore sailing over the years and I get you know, salt water in the air and, mm. and feed, but I actually don't get motion sick. Certainly I've been with a lot of people who do. <laughs> I was going to say including a squadron of SAS people, and, yeah, yeah, which we'll talk about. I think Tim was sleeping on my deck when I was the second in command of HMS Stewart during Pong Su in 2003, and I remember he was looking pretty green at times as well. <laughs> so, uh, and I, and I wasn't helping him at all, telling him the, uh, there's only the first stage of seasickness uh, is that terrible stage when you think you're going to die, and then there's that really terrible stage. When you're <laughs> <laughs> well, in my defence, I've never been seasick, and I was probably one of the few on that operation that wasn't ill, and Ben was with oh, me. Oh, Jesus, I was. Yeah, I was yeah, okay. crook. But I have. Uh, and actually, it can be great comfort to see these uh, <laughs> uh, troopers and uh, how they were coping with the seas at the time. Oh. It was true. But you know, Nelson got seasick every day of his life. And hmm. so when you do this in a Hobart yacht race, there's three questions in a row you ask. One, do you get seasick? Because if you get seasick, there's no point. Two, are you physically fit? And third, by the way, can you sail? Because in reality, if you get seasick, you're, you're just dead weight. So. Uh, we're going to circle back to the Pongsu later, but curious because you have just transitioned and whilst uh, life in uniform is still very fresh in your mind, to someone that was thinking about joining Army, Navy, Air Force, but specifically the Navy, what have you been able to take from your first career and apply in your second career? I probably am, Tim, I'll get back to that, uh, that reason that I joined. You know, what is your purpose? And for most Australians, it actually does relate to service and adventure, I'd say. And I think um, if that's your purpose at a, as a young age, as a young lady or a young, young bloke, you know, around the 20s, I couldn't think of any better career to fulfil that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not every day is a good day over 30, 35 years. Mm. As we all know, but the uh, the opportunities to actually to serve your community, serve your country, uh, serve at a global level, and actually to experience the uh, the adventures along the way, um, I have no doubt um, that I that that the navy gave me that in space. In fact, you know, I often say the navy owes me nothing. Mm. I owe it everything. You know, really, over the last thirty three years, from a professional perspective, and the same army and air force. And, because I was at the Australian Defence Force Academy in those early days, and you were both there as well, you know, uh, to, to work, um, to, to meet, first of all, at the Australian Defence Force Academy, young women and men from all over Australia, from all different, um, uh, I guess, parts of Australian society, from, you know, private school boys who've been at boarding school all their lives to single-parent young women or men, you know, kind of really only just got into ADFA and then just thrived. And, you know, to meet West Australians literally for the first time, mm. you know, and I mean that, you know, the other thing I've probably met the Western Australian before I went to, uh, heard a lot about them, you know, <laughs> confirmed some things about Western Australians as well, and I did that. <laughs> mm. But to actually have that experience is kind of, you know, to, to, um, and then to come together as a, as a group and then over a very short period, you know, to, to be a team, it, it really is, uh, you know, it's, it's just not only is it exciting, it's so fulfilling as well. So I think the Australian Defence Force, you know, we've all seen other Defence Forces around the world, but I think even more so from my experience, it's just provided all the things that, you know, I wanted at the time and I've got no doubt that still applies in 2021. Instead, I was just a boy from the suburbs of Melbourne 
nothing against the suburbs of Melbourne, but you know, uh, it was escapism and escapism of you know, the very best kind. I think I, when I look back on my career, there's all those things you mentioned, all the tangible skills, all the, the sort of experiential stuff. But for me, there's also those, just those tiny little snapshots. And I, I remember things like flying down the Brisbane River in a Black Hawk at night about to assault the, the casino in a mock exercise. Those little vignettes that no matter how rich you are, no matter what other things you have at your disposal, you could never, never ever get outside of that context. And I imagine you must have had a number of those sorts of things in, in your Navy career. Do any stick out to mind, in, in your mind, in terms of just those amazing Navy experiences? Look, well, first of all, I mean, how do you judge success? Now, I must get told true success is who tells the best stories at a dinner table. You know, <laughs> and, they're, and they're actually true. <laughs> so, uh, and even now, I mean, you probably both use, it, you know, uh, use our experiences to tell a story, tell a narrative, especially your current businesses and focus, which you're very good at. But even where I am now, it's really important to actually to review and reflect and then tell those stories. Look, I've got plenty of stories, you know, at, um, you know, either at sea or, you know, uh, or either in, um, you know, operations, whether it be border protection or in the South China Sea or, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan or, or you know. My, my best experiences, I think, are still the human experiences. And I've said this actually in a previous podcast. I think the best moments of my career was not just the privilege um, of, of reaching the pinnacle by commanding a warship, is when you actually are part of a team um, and you know you're leading that team, and uh, rather than the, that team saying there's the captain, they say that's my captain. You know you've actually succeeded then in so many levels. You know, uh, and it really is a really powerful moment. So, so I think my most powerful and important and the, the, the moments I'm most proud of is probably at sea, either commanding or second in command or being leading the boarding party and realising that to that team you're their leader you know, mm. uh, and you're giving them what they need, not what they want. And I think they're really powerful experiences. And, of course, there's been other fantastic things. Searching for MH370. You know, to actually to be there with you know Chinese warships, Chinese Coast Guard, and, and our common adversary was the search itself and the sea itself. You know, fortunately we didn't find him H three seventy, but to actually to be part of that, to be doing border party, boarding party operations, and to be seven days, you know, uh, you know, involved in a particular very challenging situation, a very emotive, moral, ethical, and physical situation, and to be with you know these incredible um, sailors, soldiers females, males, all parts of Australian society and to see them at their best in those most challenging uh, circumstances, you know, three o'clock in the morning, you know, being proud that you actually led this team in the most challenging uh, circumstances. Yeah, and there's other special moments. You know, I was very privileged to command HMAS Perth in 2013 during the Fleet Review. When I first joined the Navy, I remember seeing the Fleet Review of 1986 and 1988 and big diagrams of all the ships in Sydney Harbour. And then to actually, you know, you know almost 30 years later, to actually command, I guess, the, the flagship for the Fleet Review, you know, you, it's, it's really very, very special. The final thing I'd just say, just say one thing I'm also, uh, is to see how you developed yourself over the years. And I'm most proud, not so much what I achieved, but how I achieved it. 
But the first time I went on a bridge, um, seeing a captain with binoculars and everyone looking at the back of the head of the captain in a really terrible situation, it wasn't going right, and seeing the captain just say all the right things and the whole team focus behind him. And then to be in that same circumstance 25 years later, binoculars at the bridge and seeing the whole team, well, feeling the whole team, looking at the back of the head, knowing that you were in command and you were leading. Ironically, though, when you actually are looking through the binoculars, you realise... I don't really know what I'm doing here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. I, 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 you start out of your start saying and doing stuff. And you go, where did that come from? By the way, that sounds really good. But all that experience, all that nurturing, all those great sailors, and I say as much as officers have kind of, you know, uh, sometimes read your horoscope and actually have moulded you, nurtured you to that, that, that pinnacle in your career. So it's a long answer, Ben, but probably my best experience is, sure, there have been like Seahawks, you know, over all platforms in the Northern Arabian Gulf and, you know, and all that kind of high adrenaline stuff. But I reckon the most powerful and enduring experiences are, are those human ones. Well, let's go to when you were least experienced, graduated from ADFA, did your bridge watch keeping certificate, I think, in 1992. And then peculiarly, uh, you had an appointment as a watch officer and the executive officer on sail training ship Young Endeavour. Uh, can you talk about the Young Endeavour and your role as a newly minted uh, young sub-lieutenant uh, on the ship? Yeah, thanks, Tim. Look, I think there's been about four or five moments in my career. I've had senior officers and other people go, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? You know, <laughs> yes. And then I think I had the option, and I actually had been selected to be a flag lieutenant, and I chose to go to Young Endeavour. Best decision, you know, I ever made because it was just a fantastic adventure and it was a very special uh, experience. The first thing was leadership. You know, up to that point, I'd been with people who generally did as they're told. You get to... Get to a tool ship, you've got all the young Australians, and they go, Why, what, etc. It's almost, you know, it's completely different kind of leadership style. You had to, you know, a bunch of young, um, sometimes uh, scared Australians, you had to kind of convince them about what they're doing in very tough sea conditions. So, a really, uh, really good experience. One thing actually, it, it really um, consolidated a view I had about young women and young men. And uh, I found that young men had this real. Fear of showing fear. You know, they didn't like to be show fear. Where young women had, you know, di- didn't have that same kind of fear in some ways. The number of times I'd be on Young Endeavour in the middle of the night and having to go to the top sail, thirty metres up and pulling up the uh, um, these huge sails, and you'd be kind of because the storm would hit or school would come in, and I'd look on the top yard and next to me there would always be generally one or two young women, not young men, next mm. to me. Those really tough circumstances, doing the hard yards looking at me, trusting me, and up we'd go, where the young men kind of make some excuses and didn't want to you know, show fear. So they kind of, you know, it was just a really powerful reinforcement as well of, of, you know, of not stereotypically, uh, it, it, it was just, it was just really, um, it took me away from a, uh, the disciplined Navy, Army, Air Force, and back into you know, the real Australia and seeing a real Australia through a through it to the ship. It was a fantastic experience. Young Endeavour is basically like a three-bedroom house for 24 young Australians on it, making wet and shake for five days to see what happens. <laughs> well, so, a social 
<laughs> Sounds like a reality show. Yeah, um, in fact, your your story of being the, the first posting to a young endeavour reminds me of an Air Force uh, colleague of mine, and apparently at the end of pilot's course, they'd have a big dining-in night and they'd announce where they were going, you know, what kind of aircraft type they'd go to. And so they'd put up, you know, flight lieutenant blogs and then they'd show a silhouette of an F-18 and, yay, he's going to fighters. And then, you know, flight lieutenant Jones and they'd show a silhouette of a C-130, yay, he's going to um, Stratlift. And apparently they showed this guy, his name's up on on the board, and they put a silhouette of a hot air balloon. <laughs> his first post was to fly the Air Force promotional hot air balloon. So, oh. Yeah, very, very well, interesting. After his chosen, I'm sure he did well. On Young Endeavour, though, I did have two serious incidents. I had a young lady fall from the top mast 25 metres down. I actually did look at her um, uh, and think we had, had a fatality. So that really – and I guess we're, we're – um, uh, attuned to the fact that yeah, the nature of our business is military is that we will face that and we have faced that you know, in, in different circumstances throughout our careers. But to see a young Australian you know, on the deck, you know, actually having to deal with that. And actually, and, and not long after that, we had a young lady fall from the uh, top mast into her, uh, her, um, uh, her, her kind of belt system and actually stopped breathing as well. So, so they were a very powerful experience as well. It wasn't actually uh, people who, who expected to actually put their lives in danger. We actually, these were young Australians. And I'm proud about how the team dealt with that as well. It's mm. interesting when people are under pressure, and you would both know far more than me, um, that, that you know things aren't going right when those who normally talk a lot shut up. And those who normally say, you know, who, who don't say much start talking and people start behaving differently and then trying to get them all kind of in the right direction to deal with a really challenging situation. And, and in both those incidents, I overrated a couple of people who didn't perform, and geez, I underrated a couple of people who actually just were superb in the most stressful of situations. So there were a couple of other experiences from Young Endeavour. So head cadet at the Australian Defence Force Academy, you were awarded the Sword of Leadership. You went to the Royal Australian Navy College in Jarvis Bay and won the Queen's Medal. And from the sail training ship Young Endeavour, you go and complete your Principal Warfare Officers course and your ducks of that as well. Is there anything you haven't topped, Lee? I, I sat next to some great people during my exams. Also. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Michelle oh. was there. She probably had the neatest writing. I mean, she had the distance into this that I've ever known. So, <laughs> look, um, I, um, uh, I, yeah, yeah, life's a marathon, not a sprint. So when I had to study hard, I did study hard. I'm not the, I'm not the perfect student. I'm not the perfect officer. But I realised in those, um, you know, when you had to put your head down and, and study hard, that was, that was pretty important to, to do that. Um, with the, uh, the, you know, obviously Adfield was a brilliant experience, you know, uh, three years there. And I know, Tim, you were there, you know, a couple of years um, uh, below me. and, and uh, Open and brackets, far less distinguished, close brackets. Were you studying hard? Were you putting I your head not. down when you had to? No, but I, I did pass and I didn't <laughs> fail anything. Nothing above 60%, 16 straight passes. Got a 49% actually, conceded pass. Less distinguished. Yeah, but, well, look, I think then they used to have a, a pass mark there called a pass conceding, which means you got 45 to 50%, which the, the department said, right, we'll pass you, but never come back to this department ever again. Is, is it, yeah, it's the we've spent a lot of money on you. Yeah, okay, we're getting you through. There was that and wonderful, the, wonderful saying. Um, so, yeah. There was that wonderful saying, um, sort of 51% wasted, wasted effort. effort, 49% wasted year. 
<laughs> okay, so from uh, from your PWOS course, you go and join uh, Anzac class frigates, and there are a few of them. Can you describe life on board and a naval warship? Uh, what that's like as a junior officer up into senior officers, and you know the sort of pressure and stressors of leading a warship. It's pretty unrelenting, isn't it? Yeah, I'll come back to the Anzac um, warships which were built down in Lewistown because I'm really proud to be part of that story. Because we now talk about the latest and greatest warships. Um, uh, of this generation, 2021, of course, in the, in the mid 90s, they were the most and greatest. First of all, warships are, um, uh, as an ecosystem, are quite remarkable. You know, they're very team focused. There are, um, you know, lots of different personalities. Um, you know, um, you could, you, you've basically got, you know, 200 metres or 150 metres basically uh, to go one way or the other away from humans you either want to be with every day or sometimes don't want to be with either. So you've got to really adapt and actually be. Um, yeah, you know, and understand uh, that you you are you may be a leader of the system, but you're also one individual in the system as well. Um, my initial experiences in warships was probably uh, the older generation uh, midshipmen, where you actually um, slept and ate initially with the with the men in the big mess decks. You know, with 60, 70 sailors, which I think was probably um, the most important uh, leadership and nurturing experience for me in my career. You know, to be with hardened sailors who are looking at you every day thinking you're the person who's going to lead us. And we're going to give you a hard time on horoscope, but we're going to make sure that we prepare you to lead us as well. And, in fact, after leaving the um, domestic of HMAS Perth, um, the number two destroyer, um, in 1990, I remember sailors telling me that, you know, we'll give you a hard time as an officer, but, you know, that's what Australians do. But the moment you stop behaving like an officer is when we really will give you a hard time because we have expectations and we've just invested in you for the last three or four months. So that's that's one part of warship, the human part. The um, the second thing I'd say on a warship, you can tell, I reckon, within about the first 15 minutes whether this warship is humming, whether it's effective, whether it's a, you know, it's a happy ship, it's a, uh, a world-honed uh, ship and whether you know, it's ready to fight and win at sea. And I think, you know, for those who experienced in it, you can just tell, you know, by the way that you are greeted by the people on board, the sense of, uh, of ownership, the sense of, of teamship, uh, the, uh, the respect, but the, uh, the empowerment on board as well. That's how. And then thirdly, with, with a warship, of course, it is your home. You know, you spend, you know, six to nine months. You know, you, you may only have literally, you know, when you first go to see a, a, a bunk, you know, it's, you know, it could be less than a metre high and two metres you know, long, and that's actually your, and then everything around you is at home, and the people you live with are your family. And it's really, really, um, really powerful to, to, to be part of that as well and, and to experience it firsthand. It's actually, it's sad actually to see after long deployment, some sailors can't give it up, you know, mm. Yeah, it's sad, but you know, some sailors within two days are going home. They should be having a family go back to the ship because it's so powerful. Yeah, you know, we they're the ones we shake and say, "What are you doing? Get home!" Yeah, but that's the kind of powerful experience after being away for sixteen months. I was going to ask about that and and the attachment or the relationship with the ship itself. They develop characters, don't they? That that and that that attachment you just mentioned. I remember someone telling me about. Uh, I think they're hot crewing patrol boats now, and and it was a really different thing when it wasn't your ship. It was just something you you jumped in and out of. Can you comment on that? The the ship as a, a sort of character in itself. 
Yeah, look, I think the ownership and custodianship of, of a ship is a really powerful reflection of a crew and a team. Yeah, absolutely. You 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 become part of. Uh, you realise you're part of the institution that is the ship. You have a small two year or three year window in its life, and how important and how privileged that is as well. And you know, and there's and of course we often carry on ships' names, or there's an association with a town, or or an indigenous uh, grouping such as a Runta Waramanga, and it's a really powerful association. I mean, we've probably come to Palm Sue on HMS Stewart, of course, it was called the Tartan Terra, you know, and all those associations with the Scottish-Australian heritage. People were really proud of that, you know, the Braveheart kind of uh, um, yeah, persona of that ship really shone through and everything you know, we did. You know, it was just pride of, you know, of, of, of HMS Stewart, that ship, the ones that had gone before, and, and, and the legacy for those that would come, um, you know, in the future as well, named, named Stewart. Well, 2001 to 2003, you were the executive officer of HMAS Stewart, and our paths crossed in 2003 with the interception of the North Korean drug ship Pong Su. We were talking <laughs> off air about how much we've talked about it, and maybe our observations weren't right. What are your recollections and observations of that operation to board and seize the Pong Su? Well, first, HMA Stewart commissioning her around down Winterstown was just a terrific crew, a terrific turn. Really was, you know, I was still keeping very close contact with them. And just prior to our Easter 2003, we'd been deployed on border protection operations. We actually spent Christmas at Christmas Island. There's actually a song called Christmas Christmas Island. Okay. You've got better things to do, but it's actually but it's a, it's a very important experience. So so we um we had commissioned that ship, uh, I think, in August 2002, done some in- intense testing. I'd spent a long time on border protection, uh, probably at the height of our border protection challenges to Australia. I spent Christmas, Christmas Island. So the team was ready. We were, um, uh, uh, I think, just leading up to Easter, we were going into a long break. So we sent a lot of our crew away after, you know, really six months, uh, uh, almost non-stop operations at sea or assessments. Um, I just remember the call. And, uh, you know, we can talk more openly now, the intelligence reports coming in and the uh, queuing that something may be happening with a very unusual situation. And, uh, you know, it's, it's now public. that originated in our waters, you know, west and south of our continent. And then, of course, it's coming up the uh, East Australian coast. And that, Stuart, we know that you've um, just come back from a long deployment. We know that you've got a lot of crew away but you are the ship that's in the best position to respond to this, so stand by. Have you been to India? 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 Well, you better get some of it, India. joining the ship and actually feeling this sense of relief that you were the XO, I thought, geez, you know, people talk about networking at the Australian Defence Force Academy, but that was living proof of it. And I, I remember boarding the ship thinking, geez, I hope Lee remembers me, otherwise this is going to be an absolute fizzer. But you went above and beyond, in fact, in so very many ways to accommodate a stinking SAS squadron coming on board, including giving up, you know, nearly a religious artefact, the wardroom. <laughs> uh, I remember that we actually, of course, our wardrobe and our officers mess, and that essentially was the central point for your briefings. And 
where you are obviously living and um, and um, and rehearsing, you know, a lot, you know, which which by the way, you allowed me to be part of that, and that was actually um, a real privilege to see what I already knew, the professionalism of you know, of, of of the regiment, um, in particular in this uh, type type of mission. Uh, if you recall, Ben and Tim, it was really deciding who was the best. Uh, I guess, security uh, agency first responder to deal with the situation. Clearly, you know, the regiment, uh, because of the nature of the potential threat, and, um, and we weren't absolutely sure where this situation would go. And, you know, again, it's on a public record that, you know, obviously a North Korean um, uh, vessel, North Korean crew, uh, narcotics, um, murder, uh, obviously, a death at sea and a whole lot of issues. Obviously, building up to that. So the only assumption was, you know, at the right edge of, um, especially what uh, this um, North Korean crew might do in terms of uh, um, uh, not letting us on board or whatever we uh, needed to do. But of course, we actually also had New South Wales police on. We had federal police. We had Navy Coast Divers. I think Tag East had just formed up. With Australian well, Australian customs, so actually, from an interagency perspective, it was really. Um, mm. I think it worked really well in terms of having everyone on board, and the camaraderie and the understanding of what each of those uh, parts of our system would do uh, in this operation. And to be frank, I, I thought ego was left aside, um, in, in, and I think it's because it was the right personalities at the right time. In fact, many people afterwards said it was an exemplar of an interagency operation as much as a focus, get the special forces, the regiment, to where it needs to be to do its job and deliver this. It, isn't, it wasn't a law enforcement effect. It was a significant Australian effect to deal with this issue. Mm. It's funny you mentioned that. I distinctly remember we rocked up, and as you mentioned, Tag East was relatively newly formed at that stage, and they were standing by, obviously, in Sydney where they were home-based. And we uh, made it over on the Qantas aircraft and essentially took over as the assault force from them, which must have been, at a professional level, really um, uh, sort of an anti-climax for them and disappointing. But I, I do remember them giving us their boarding poles, giving us equipment, being nothing but positive and supportive of the team, even though they must have been really disappointed themselves. And I mean, no matter what's happened between the two units since, and it's had its highs and lows, I definitely remember that um, incredible collegiate and mission first attitude in, in that little vignette. Mm. Yeah, and you're right. Of course, we had the Australian Federal Police, New South Wales Police, and of course, Team One, uh, the Navy Courier Stylers as well. Look, I'm, yeah, I'm sure there was, you know, there was some kind of moments of, you know, uh, uh, I wouldn't say tension, but, you know, um, but I think the behaviour of the collective to get the job done was really very impressive. And I think it was, you know, we're, we're, we're disciplined, you know, that's the right way to approach. To be frank, you know, both you, Ben and Tim as well significantly contributed to that. So right personalities at the right time as well. I mean, as EXO, of course, as much as you're you know, responsible for operations, you're also the... Uh, the hotel manager, you know, of a ship. <laughs> so, so getting everyone on board with, uh, you know, not just their the, the humans and their equipment, but their weapons, their systems, you know, uh, and not just their the, uh, the kinetic, but the non-kinetic systems as well. It was, it was quite a, I'm, I'm sure afterwards I had a couple of like, yeah, right, you did it this time, but don't ever do it like that again. But, but we made it work. We made it, you know. 
I've been waiting for years to work out who the manager of that particular hotel was because I've, I've got a complaint. I've got a big complaint. <laughs> no, I wasn't allocated a room. I slept for an hour or so on the floor of the wardroom, I think, before orders. I mean, I joke. We spoke about seasickness before, but I, I do remember we were heads down trying to plan. And I remember, I don't even remember the, the ship steaming. That's how much, you know, we, we started planning while it was alongside in um, Potts Point obviously started moving, moving, but the next thing I remember, things are getting a bit lumpy as we got outside of the heads, and then, my God, I, I was crook for about that, that first sort of 36-hour period. Mm. Not as crook as your signaller. No, we had members who, <laughs> in fact, two funny vignettes, my, my signaller was absolutely incapacitated, and they put him right at the the the, the keel, uh, basically uh, along the, the lowest point in the ship. Is that standard sort of Navy protocol, Lee? That, yeah. To, to try and sort of minimise the movement. And he was on intravenous saline. And I remember just as we'd secured the, the Pong Su, we, we literally said, you know, stronghold secured. Then he pops up, Cynthia Charlie, ready to go. <laughs> it's like, oh, dude, <laughs> it's, you, it's all you over. It. But the, the other funny one, they'd embarked a, um, a Navy surgeon um, as part of this, this mission, not normal part of the ship's complement. And um, one of our uh, team leaders' roles um, hit him up at one stage during the planning saying, look, a, a number of the boys are getting really sick. Have we got some meds that we can administer to try and um, lessen the burden? And the, the surgeon looked at him pensively, nodded his head, and then threw up all over him. <laughs> so the, the poor surgeon was crook as well. Oh, it's horrible. All right, so let's let's move on. You then commanded Parramatta, Lee, and in doing so you won the Duke of Gloucester Award. Can you talk about that command of a warship and that award? Yeah, look, I mean, first up, it was my first, I guess, command and um, where, you know, I guess that's the pinnacle of your career. You know, you're the captain of the ship. And, you know, um, so that was, a, that was a real privilege. And Parramatta, of course, has a very famous ship, you know, uh, in terms of the, the previous Parramatta's. And, and she just returned to the Gulf and had won a meritorious unit citation. So I was inheriting a very good ship. And, uh, and inheriting a good ship means, you know, uh, you've got to make sure you continue mm. to keep it's one of the toughest things to do. You know, you always, in some ways, you always want a ship that's not going so well. So you have to <laughs> that, than David Marquette style. That's right. So, yeah. Um, no, that was a real privilege. Actually, I, I had an incident early on in my command. We were doing our workups. And I think I was a bit full of myself and the team was a bit confident as well. We had a major setback. We actually had nearly had a sailor die. It was a diving accident. And we actually had to go to an inquiry as well. And, you know, like we, we came out a bit fine, but it really threw us out for about three months. We lost our momentum. We probably lost some of our, lost some of our confidence as well. So that was probably then the opportunity to either um, thrive or, you know, to be frank, fight. So that, that was the, the first year. Um, you know, as the first year captain, you know, you, you get the balance right some days, not other days. You know, you try and be this very inclusive, empathetic captain, but... What did surprise me that first year as a captain is um, I was probably more uncompromising than I thought I would be. And you kind of have to. You really, that, that leadership of giving people what they need, not what they want, and being far more direct um, in certain things. In fact, I, I forgave all those grumpy, uncompromising captains, whoever, whoever I worked for, because I realised often actually captains were grumpy because they were physically tired. And you yeah. have to really look after yourself, yeah. really do, you know, because, you know, in the middle of the night, you know, so going to the Lake Australia, so we're going in here, you could be called you know, six, seven times. You know, you're always on edge. Second year of my command, which is natural, you relax into it. You become so much more self-assured. Actually, you find with your team, the less you say, the better they do. <laughs> you mm. know, that's probably a life, lesson for life of all of us. And we're very mm. fortunate 
year I was there to to be awarded the Gloucester Cup, which is, you know, I think with the Air Force and Army have similar, which is the, uh, I guess, the um, the best uh, performing uh, ship. And I guess the, the ship that is just uh, to most reflects, you know, Navy's values, but also in terms of uh, to be the most operationally efficient ship as well. So, so that was a real privilege. So, sorry, Lee. So at that point, you were literally the pride of the fleet. You had mm. fulfilled that recruiting ad. And you were wet and homesick and frightened as well? I shamelessly played that jingle every single time we came alongside. So I was <laughs> I still do as well. But no, it was, um, yeah, for, I mean, because when you join a ship, you actually what you don't necessarily want it to be the best. You want it to be the best it can be. You can't always be the best. And there's a whole lot of circumstances that it could be a program or there could be you know, something unfortunate, your missile launcher doesn't work, or you just simply don't have maybe the, the people uh, at the start, you know, maybe who, who either had the experience. You've just got to make the team the best it can be. We were, I reckon the first year we weren't the best, uh, but we were the best we could be. In the second year, uh, were we the best? Others will judge that, but we remained the best we could be. And I think that's probably, it's a bit like that, you know, you, it's not what you achieve, it's how you achieve it. Mm. I think that's, you know, you have to reflect on that. Now, from one side of Lake Burley Griffin, uh, on the military side, you crossed over to Parliament House and did time with the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Can you describe what you did there and observations on Australian politics from the perspective of a military officer? Yeah, look, I was um, I was uh, quite happy being in Sydney as I was then the commander of the surface fleet or the uh, the, the, the large warships of the Navy, the, the new. Uh, helicopter carriers, frigates, destroyers. And I then got called up to be advisor establishing a one-star position in um, Prime Minister and Cabinet and not focused on security but focused, I was actually going to go into the uh, international policy branch head position providing international policy advice. And the reason why they did that really as much as to expose a a Defence Force officer to the Barton system, you know, the central agencies, you know, uh, Prime Minister and Cabinet, Treasury Finance, know where the money is, know where the influence is. Um, it was actually also probably a bit of a benchmarking activity as well. You know, uh, and I, I almost got that. It was described to me by uh, then Secretary of Defence and the Chief of Defence was, uh, was um, Air, um, Air Chief Marshal Binskin and, and Secretary of Defence Dennis Richardson basically said, get over there. You, some areas you'll feel comfortable, some areas you won't. But that's okay. You're going to learn a lot. You're going to contribute. But there's other areas that you know we'll actually understand where we are as a defence force in terms of in the wider system. So that was a really um, uh, it was a really important experience, and in fact a really enjoyable experience as well. Um, again, you know, first couple of weeks you're a bit of a trophy and you tell lots of stories and you know everyone loves you. So after that they say start doing stuff. <laughs> you know, and, and you've got to yeah, and you've got to work within the system, and you've got to realise where we as a defence have strengths and where we actually aren't um, as uh, don't have acumen so in particular you know, uh, understanding policy and really uh, and, and understanding the gritty uh, uh, process of, of actually developing policy as well I mean I probably was used to you know throw mud at those who used to write great policy until you're actually in there mm-hmm. part of it now I've got, got great you know, certainly a greater admiration for them so Commander Maritime Border Command was your, if I'm not mistaken, final role in Navy. Can you talk about 
border commands and its involvement in our wider border policy? Yeah, thanks, Tim. Um, so actually, I got in the end, Jill appointed both uh, Commander Maritime Border Command and Commander of the Joint Agency Task Force Operations Sovereign Borders. Essentially, Maritime Border Command, one part of it is actually the de facto Coast Guard of Australia. So combining both Defence Force, Australian Border Force, and other, um, I guess, Australian national security uh, agencies such as state police forces to protect the Australian border, threats to the Australian border. And, and there are such things as, um, you know, illegal uh, people smuggling, narcotics, um, foreign interference, um, exploitation of our, our um, economic zones such as exclusive mm, economic zones or offshore territories, Antarctica. So it's huge. And, of course, Australia as a continent, our, actually our search and rescue zone and our security forces area authority leading into our littoral borders is about 11% of the Earth's surface. It's huge. You know, um, and of course, having the uh, situational awareness and the presence and the ability to respond to threats to the Australian border is, you know, it's, it's a challenge. In fact, at any given day, we're probably monitoring about 60 to 70,000 vessels of interest. And we're distilling that down to probably 15, 20 that may threaten our border. By the way, when I say threaten our border, it's actually not just traditional civil maritime threats, as I mentioned, um, you know, including COVID. It could be you know, interference with our modern sea lines communications, our underwater cables. It could be, uh, interfer- it could be uh, you're the offshore counterterrorism lead, anything offshore three miles. You know, and you would have done the exercises up off the northwest shelf, et cetera. You are the uh, uh, Australian national coordinator in terms of actually responding to those threats. It could be, um, I guess, uh, 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 grey zone activities uh, north of Australia and the Pacific, et cetera, as well. So even in, in Antarctica, you know, um, that period of cooperation and scientific uh, uh, joint research uh, and non, non-militarisation, that's behind us. We're actually have seen a completely cons- complete, uh, uh, 180 shift in the kind of behaviour there as well. So Commander Maritime Water Command essentially was situational awareness deterring activity, trying to deal with the threats at their source, especially when it came to people smuggling, and I'll come back to operations sovereign waters, having to, and then making sure that the right um, law enforcement agency was delivered to where it needed to be to deal with civil maritime threats. Under Maritime Powers Act, that could be the military, could be special forces to deal with offshore counterterrorism, it could be the Navy to deal with a fisheries issue, it could be the Australian Federal Police to deliver them to deal with a narcotics issue. So but essentially, it was deterrence, situational awareness, making sure the right law enforcement agency needed to be, it got to where it needed to be to actually deal with the threat to the Australian border. Of course, last year was a more, sorry, not last, you know, I guess all of last year was unique because of COVID and because mm. of cruise ships and, you know, and, and small boat lags, so it was, which made it even more challenging. The first one that I talked about was uh, people smuggling, and, of course, we've all been involved in that in different forms from border protection, you know, very high priority for the government in terms of the policy and operation sovereign borders. While the boats have been stopped, operation sovereign borders is to ensure they don't start again. So while um, we are ready in the maritime environment to deal with threats to the border, um, most threats in that field is now dealt with at its source where it should be, as far from Australia as it can be. And you can imagine it's a whole government effort to deal with it at its source as well. Awesome. So, Lee, that brings us up to your current role and the transition out of military. But before we leave, I want to ask one last ship driving question. Have you ever crashed a ship? Mm. I think we all have crashed a ship. In fact, uh, I remember uh, uh, seeing a warship come alongside when I was a midshipman and the captain didn't do a very good job, put it in the wharf. I was laughing 
than getting a big tap on my back of my head by an executive officer saying never last time because uh, <laughs> you actually been in position yourself and boy oh boy we've all been in positions ourselves. I don't know if they've actually uh, there's actually a very famous form you have to fill in when you've actually either crashed a ship or you know at the worst case you know, a grounding uh, you know, and quite rightly you've sleepless nights over that as a as a junior officer as a navigator and as a commanding officer. Um, but gee, I've had some close calls. I mean, um, you know, ship driving is, is is tricky and challenging, and it, you know, uh, uh, especially at Fleet Base West, actually, with the with the wind and the currents, yep. and, uh, and the uh, you know, um, and but and of course, when you're a captain, that's when you're most exposed. Everyone's looking at you, and they all want to say, "My captain's the best ship driver in the fleet." <laughs> and of course, uh, some days you're not. And, and uh, I it imagine doesn't, doesn't quite the plan. So. Particularly in high-profile ports like uh, Potts Point or something, I always get <laughs> feel the stress when I'm trying to reverse parallel park on a busy street. I can imagine <laughs> bringing a bloody park LHD Washington. alongside in, in Potts Point and, could and be tricky. And that's exactly right. You're actually, uh, you know, the busiest street in Sydney. There's people everywhere, <laughs> and you're trying to reverse park, mm. especially when you've got an admiral on the bridge giving you advice, and you've got an admiral ashore yeah. waiting for you, and you've got families. Mm. And of course, uh, you've got to act like this very, you know, because sometimes command is a bit of a sharp, you know, it's a bit of an act. You've got to act calm all over it. And that was supposed to happen. <laughs> that, that, that crush was deliberate. Yeah. I was going to say, and all your subordinates line the deck at, at attention oh, in full oh, uniform. Oh. So, you know, they've got, they've got the best seat in the house. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Come on. Okay, so out of uniform into um, Mindaroo. Tatarang. And in January 2021, this headline appears. Royal Australian Navy Admiral joins Mindaroo Foundation to boost resilience efforts. Mindaroo being Andrew Forrest's foundation. My first question is, why Mindaroo? You could have probably walked into any defence and aerospace company. Top 200 companies on the Australian Stock Exchange would have been eager for your experience and services. Why Mindaroo Foundation? Look, I get back to the three Vs about values, um, where you'll be valued and where you think you'll add the most value and make the most impact. Uh, so Mindru ticks all those boxes. Um, uh, Andrew Nicola Forrest uh, founded um, the Mindru Foundation 20 years ago. Uh, and in 2021, it's across eight core initiatives and, and does many uh, great things in terms of taking on difficult, challenging problems of our time with impact philanthropy at its centre. And, and impact, when I say impact philanthropy, it's a collective. It's actually working closely with, with government, with communities, with uh, research sector, with the corporate sector, with, with other businesses, social capital, venture capital, and being a catalyst for change. And, and some of the initiatives that Mindaroo is focused on includes you know, some huge uh, challenges, such as you know, collaborating for the cure for cancer, flourishing oceans, uh, Generation One, when you're working with our Indigenous communities, um, walk free in terms of modern slavery, it goes on. But this time last year, of course, Australia had just um, experienced the Black Summer bushfires, and phenomenal in terms of, of the scale, you know, uh, by any means. Um, climate change is occurring. Um, you know, won't you know, get into the debate about the reasons why, but it is an extreme weather events causing natural hazards is a significant challenge for Australia, always has been. Um, but in terms of uh, how we deal with it, we seem to be on the same roundabout. We tend to respond, we recover, 
resilience part, we bounce back stronger, and then we don't ever seem to be quite prepared for the next event, and we seem to be on the same roundabout, same result. So, so what um, excited me was this challenge of of using impactful FP and this this ecosystem, this collective of different parts of the Australian system or global system to solve the most challenging problems of our time. And the one that I've been uh, asked to be part of uh, initially um, um, is an enduring, this enduring problem of natural hazard disasters. So how, how do we, for example, in terms of our, 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 this continuum of, of uh, resilience, how do we lift communities up you know, to make sure that those least most vulnerable are actually at the level of those actually the most resilient? How do we create healthy landscapes? And from a technical perspective, how do we use low orbit satellites? How do we use drone technology? How do we use our situational tools to actually to deal with, um, for example, fires? You know, we we with the, we have the technologies now to perhaps detect a fire at inception, or certainly you'd be putting it out within one hour. You know, the fires that we've just seen in the Perth Hills, you know, um, are terrible. You know, and imagine if we actually had known where that fire was at inception and got to it within the first hour. What a difference that would have made to those communities. Now, if we had the right modelling or the right systems to actually know exactly where that fire or lightning or whatever was going to strike. And I just say this is one problem, but, of course, this system of having this collective solving difficult problems, I think it's much wider to solve all the problems of our time as, as we move forward. And I think this, this decade is an inflection point. You know, COVID, climate change, geostrategic issues, Perhaps they say that for every decade, but I think we need to understand that you know, um, government is only one part of the uh, uh, solution, even, even of the leadership, and there's other parts of the system now. So that's that's the reason why. Um, I was commuting to Canberra uh, for the last four or five years, and you know, my family's in Sydney, that's where my community is, uh, and I made a personal decision that if I was going to reorientate and do something different at 52 years, well, 51 years of age, and now 52, I wanted to do it then. Um, yeah, the actual realisation that the best time of your life isn't ahead of you, you know, thrusting ahead, or even behind you in terms of entitlement or what you did, et cetera, it's actually right now. So um, you've got to really work out where you think, as I said, the values align, where you'll be most valued, but most importantly, where you think you're going to add the most value, where you can make the most impact. Mindaroo. It's overarching, um, I guess, drivers make impact and make impact fast. And for me, that's really appealing. One more question on resilience. What makes a resilient community? What's the Mindaroo thesis on that? Yeah, look, resilience is a uh, much wider word now. And, you know, we talk about resilience, some talk about um, national resilience in terms of supply chains and our ability to be independent, especially during the COVID environment. But for a resilient community, holistically for Australia or you know, at a town level or you know, at a, a small level, it's, it's all the components of, of leadership, uh, preparation, communication, um, having systems in place to prepare as much as to respond. So it's the continuum of resilience. I mean, resilience, by definition, is, is bouncing back stronger after you know, a setback or an event. We have changed that slightly to say it's a continuum of resilience. It's actually about adaption at the same time. Mm. So that you actually, yes, you inevitably Australia will um, suffer um, catastrophic um, natural hazard events. 
That's Australian society. It's, it's a reality. I think climate change is real. We're going to work on that in the next five, 10 years. We have to accept that. So it's how, sure, how do we respond, how do we recover, how do we bounce back stronger? But how do we make sure where we're aiming in 2025 that we actually have um, societies that are better prepared, stronger leadership, you know, have all the, uh, uh, say, mental health and other systems all in place? You know, and we just, we've identified a resilience index. And, um, you know, it's going to be uh, sort of controversial, but you've got to call it that some, some parts of our system in Australia are more resilient than others. Some towns and, and, and societies are, are more resilient than others. So how do we lift those which are most vulnerable? Some it's because of, um, because of geographic or environmental reasons. Some it's actually because of poor leadership or, or poor systems in place. So how do we lift that to be you know, uh, at the same level of the most resilient um, societies that we currently have? The core cool things about community, systems in place and leadership really are the critical uh, components of a resilient uh, community. Have the most resilient, least resilient towns been released? Has that data been tabled yet? We have a resilience index and uh, in due course when we launch our uh, resilient communities mission and um, uh, as part of this initiative, which is uh, it's an audacious goal for Australia to be the global leader on natural hazard disaster resilience by 2025. And there's yeah, a whole lot of clear statements about putting out fires in one hour, fires in inception. Um, and part of our, our, our first launch was what's called Fire Shield, which talks about the technical um, ways that we're going to do this problem, and, but also uh, using Indigenous methodology, how Indigenous Australians used to manage our land, well, still do very, very effectively prior to uh, you know, our, our modern systems being in place. The second one is about healthy landscapes, understanding our landscapes, measurement tools, et cetera. The third and final missions launch will be resilient communities. And in that, one of our stated um, objectives is to talk about the 50 most resilient communities in Australia and talk about the 50 most vulnerable. So we actually will release it then. Good thing with being with um, uh, an impact philanthropy like Mindaroo, we're perhaps not bound by some of the rules of government. We actually can make the statements we need to make to uh, enable change. And we don't self-deter from that. My last question, of all of your achievements in uniform and out of uniform, from the personal to the academic, what are you proudest of? Um, I'm probably proudest of, as a generic state, not so much what I achieved, but how I achieved it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm like us all, you know, we're all imperfect uh, and not every day is a good day and you don't always behave in accordance with your values or your principles every day. But I'm probably most proud that after 34 years in the military, I held true to my purpose, my values and my principles. And I actually did reflect on those most days, including when I failed at those too. So I think that's one. Um, in terms of, um, you know, in, in the Navy, I'm, I'm very proud that I was involved in the Anzac story, that, you know, I commissioned two Anzacs, I commanded two Anzacs, and I saw, even though they're coming to the end of their um, life, to be frank, now they're at the the, the 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 last third of their kind of uh, operation employment. To be part of that story, that very successful, not only um, Australian built warship class, 
But what they did over and continue to do over 25, 30 years, and it's to see these incredible Australians, these women and men that I've served with who are Anzac sailors, and to be part of that. I'm really, you know, when I do eventually end up in an RSL and you know, um, be telling stories to anyone who listen, that's actually a story I'm, I'm, I'm going to be very proud of. Um, the uh, one other thing I, um, I will, it's just, one, well, I was asked this question last night, actually. I was actually at uh, one of my children's schools and, I, I had the real privilege at the um, in the early 80s of actually meeting uh, Gallipoli and World War veterans firsthand in local RSLs at 85, 90. They're a bit grumpy with everyone else, but if you're a young boy, they'd tell you their story. And I it used to spell about I commanded HMAS Perth and HMAS Paramount, and both those ships were lost in World War II. Mm. Um, and I met the crews of both of those ships. Most of them have now passed on, but my son, Dom, as an eight, nine-year-old boy, got to meet you know, the men of HMAS Parramatta and the men of HMAS Perth. And, and the men of HMAS Perth, most of them, after those half, both, both those ships, half the crew survived. In HMAS Perth case, all who survived were then were prisoners of war on the, uh, on the uh, Thai Burma Railways. And then most of them actually then ended up being sunk again on their way up to, uh, to Japan. So to actually, for my son, and to, to listen into their stories with my son firsthand, basically, you know, and to be a bridge of time, like I was World War I veterans, that was incredibly special as well. Personal experiences, for me, easy one is actually coming home after those long deployments, especially as a captain. First of all, making sure that you, know, that you had led and made sure all these people got home to their families. And secondly, to be home with your own family after six months away. I mean, there's nothing more rewarding, nothing more special and nothing more uh, satisfying. Um, yeah, I'd say they are. But, but again, it probably comes back to human experiences. As I said, I think... The most special moment in my career was when I, as I said, when a crew member said, not that's the captain, when they said it's my captain. Hmm. If, if, if a captain asked me what the definition of success is, I'd say it's that. Well, Lee, I, I could probably add one to the list of things you should be very proud of, and that's the fact that I've never heard anyone mention your name um, uh, accompanied by anything other than effusive praise. You are an extremely well-respected or were a well-respected member of the, the Australian Defence Force and, and clearly continue to be a well-respected member of Australian society. Lee Goddard, thank you very much for speaking with us today. Here, here. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Tim. And um, congratulations on not only your careers, uh, but what you're doing now as well. You you continue to make a difference and I'm very proud of you both. Thanks, Lee. Cheers, Lee. See ya. Lately you've been singing so down I just want to make you smile, don't you know It's perfect when you do Lately it's getting out and lose that frown Thinking back to that time when I Was just getting close to you and When I think back to that time the girl I used to know All the one I fell in love with Where's she gone? Cause I need her back tonight And I say Hey, you know summer's almost ending Winter's nearly here This might be our last night Spent like this Put your arms around me And we'll say up tonight we don't need no sleep, no, darling, don't you see? Wake up next day, memories burn through my head, oh. How the hell did we get in this tent? I look across and I see you next to me, and everything is alright, oh. And 
darling, why can't you see? We could go back to that time. You're still the girl I used to know. All the one I fell in love with. So why are you coming back? Cause I need you back tonight. And I say, hey, you know, summer's almost ending. Winter's nearly here. This might be our last night spent like this. Put your arms around me. I will say, not tonight. We don't need no sleep, no. Darling, don't you see? Coming back, I really need you, darling. Are you coming back tonight? Oh, darling, are you coming back? I really need you, darling. Are you coming back tonight? And I said, Hey, hey, hey. no, oh, oh, yeah. Come on. Standing, winter's nearly here. This might be our last night spent like this. Put your arms around me, I will say up tonight. We don't need no sleep, no, darling. Don't you see? No, darling, don't you see? Darling, don't you see? Now to the debrief. We try to go always a little further in this podcast and greatly appreciate your input. Please let us know your feedback, the good, the bad, or the ugly. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, we'd love to hear about them. You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on the Unforgiving 60.